Welcome to the American Wordsmith channel, a show aimed to inspire readers to cherish the most meaningful moments found in life by learning about the mid-19th century, 1850-1906 lifestyle. Subscribe for more content on aspects of my business and writing life, as well as topics concerning mid-19th century living, child-rearing, and much more. I will be sharing several interesting excerpts from the books that I have been reading as of late. This one is an etiquette book written by Walter R. Houghton, a Victorian historian in 1883 entitled American Etiquette and Rules of Politeness. I will also put the link to the full text at the end of the excerpts if you want to read the complete work. Let's begin. The penmanship should be legible, neat, and elegant. Flourishes in a letter are out of place. Skipping pages is not to be commended, crossing letters is not entirely respectful to the person addressed, and blots and interlineations are not allowable. The closing lines of the body of the letter are usually some expression of respect or attachment, as in the following examples. Deign, madam, to receive the assurance of my respectful attachment. Accept, madam, the homage of my respect. The sentiments with which you have inspired me, sir, are equally sincere and permanent. My tender and respectful attachment will end only with my life. I have the honor to be, sir, with sentiments of respect and consideration. The closing lines, such as the preceding, are found with the ordinary formula that constitutes the conclusion. The conclusion. The conclusion consists of the complementary close and the signature. It also contains the address of the person written to, if the same is not found in the introduction. The complimentary close is the phrase of respect used at the end of a letter. It admits of a great variety of forms on social letters such as your friend, ever yours, your affectionate father, etc. But in letters written on business or to strangers and mere acquaintances, the usual form is yours truly or yours respectfully, which admits of but slight variation, as yours very truly or truly yours. Official letters have a more formal close than others, as... I have the honor to be, sir, with the highest consideration, your obedient servant, A.B. The signature is the name of the writer, and it should be attached to every letter, the name being written plainly and in full. If the writer is a lady, she should sign her name so as to indicate her sex, and whether she is married or single. This can be done by prefixing Miss or Mrs. A married lady generally uses her husband's name, to which she prefixes the title Mrs. if he is living, otherwise she should use her own name. The position for the complimentary close is on the line immediately below the body of the letter and may occupy from one to three lines. The signature is written near the right-hand edge of the sheet on the line below the complimentary close. The close and the signature must be arranged so that the initial letter of the lines will present a regular slope downward and to the right. If the address is not written at the top of the letter, it should be placed at the close, the beginning of the first word being located at the marginal line and on the line immediately below the signature. The proper punctuation of the complimentary close and the signature can be learned by consulting the folding. Folding is a very simple matter, but it is often very awkwardly done. The paper should be folded so that the edges of the letter will be exactly even. The folds ought to be pressed with a thumb or a paper knife so as to give them a neat appearance. Fine paper of medium thickness is most suitable for letters. The letter should be inserted in such a manner that when taken out in the usual way and unfolded, it will be right end up. The superscription. The superscription is the address written on the envelope and consists of the name and title of the person to whom the letter is sent and his full directions. It is called the outside address to distinguish it from the address at the head or foot of the letter. 
What is said concerning those three items in the remark on the inside address applies with equal fitness to the outside address and need not be mentioned here. The upper edge of the envelope is the open one. Have that edge from you when you write the superscription, otherwise it will be upside down. The writing should be in straight lines parallel with the upper edge of the envelope. The foolish affectation of writing diagonally across the corner is to be avoided. It is out of taste to use envelopes that are ruled either by a pen or some sharp-pointed instrument for making indentations. If you cannot write straight without lines, slip into the envelope a card ruled heavily so that the lines will show through. This may be used till straight lines can be written without the aid of ruled envelopes. The name should be a little below the middle of the envelope, the initial letter being near the left edge, sometimes close to it, sometimes one or two inches from it, according to circumstances, and the other parts should be written at equal distances, under it, each a little farther to the right, so that the last part shall come near the right-hand corner. The Stamp Before sending a letter, affix to it a proper stamp. The communication will not be forwarded unless it is prepaid one full rate. The stamp should be affixed to the upper right-hand corner of the face of the envelope at about one-sixteenth of an inch from the top and one-eighth of an inch from the end. The stamp is a picture and should be right end up its edges being parallel with those of the envelope. Putting the stamp on upside down or awry indicates carelessness rather than rapidity, and any appearance of carelessness in a letter is disrespectful to the person to whom it was sent. Be sure to put on an envelope as many stamps as are necessary to send the letter. Two stamps should be used if you are not certain that one is sufficient. A letter of introduction. As a guide is to a man in an unknown land, so is a letter of introduction to a man in a strange community. A person going to a strange place ought to be prepared with such a valuable aid. A letter of this kind properly prepared must be brief and must contain the full name and address of the person introduced, to which should be added an expression stating the pleasure that you think the new acquaintance will create. A letter of introduction may be sealed by the person introduced, but not by the writer. A gentleman delivering to a lady a letter that introduces him is at liberty to call upon her. By sending her a card, he can ascertain whether it is more convenient to receive him then or appoint another hour that is more convenient. Great caution must be exercised in giving a letter of introduction. The writer must be well acquainted with the one introduced and with the person to whom he writes. A well-bred gentleman or lady who is the recipient of such a letter will, in twenty-four hours, attend to the demands of the letter by inviting the person introduced to dine or engage in some agreeable pastime or amusement. A letter of introduction is often left with a card. In such a case, a gentleman in the family may call upon the stranger the following day, or he may send a card with an invitation. Should the letter introduce a gentleman to a lady, she may answer by a note of invitation appointing a time for him to call. Family Letters Letters written from one member of a family to another are less formal than any other kind of epistolary correspondence. They should exhibit some characteristics of the writer, should contain information on minor matters as well as on subjects of more importance, and should be written so as to give the greatest amount of satisfaction to the recipient. Letters of Friendship Letters of friendship, which are more formal than family letters, contain less gossip and embrace matters in which both the writer and recipient are interested. Such letters should be answered with sufficient promptness to keep alive the friendship between the correspondents unless there be a desire for this to cool. The business letter. This should be embraced in a few words and should relate directly to the business in hand. If an apology or explanation is necessary, let it be inserted after the business portion of the letter is finished. A business letter should be answered as soon as possible after its receipt. The response, in some cases, may be on the same page with the original letter, but this kind of reply should not be made, save when the points in question are few and brief. 
There is a difference between an ordinary promissory note and a note payable in bank that every person should understand. These notes are equally binding as to the original parties, but when transferred, the conditions change. A person in purchasing an ordinary note simply takes the place of the original payee and is liable to any offset the payer may have. On the other hand, a note payable in bank in hands of a third party is collectible whatever may be the offset against it or whatever the fraud practiced in securing it, provided the holder when buying the note was ignorant of such fraud. Sharpers often take advantage of people not understanding the nature of a banknote. A person is often induced to sign a note with a written contract that it is not to be paid unless certain conditions are fulfilled. The note is then detached from the contract and sold to an innocent purchaser and is then collectible, whatever the fraud may have been. A plain note under such circumstances would not be collectible. All notes are transferable, whatever be their form. Notes may provide for attorney's fees or not as parties agree. All notes must read for value received. A bank note to have all its force must be transferred before due. A note does not draw interest unless it is specified in the note. Letters of congratulation and condolence. They should be brief and confined to the matter for which you offer your congratulations or condolence. A letter of congratulation may be written to any acquaintance whom you wish to inform of the pleasure you derive from his success, while a letter of condolence should be sent only to intimate friends or relatives and should express real feeling for those in bereavement. The love letter. A love letter should be dignified in tone and expressive of esteem and affection. It should be free from silly and extravagant expressions and contain nothing of which the writer would be ashamed were the letter to fall under the eyes of any person beside the one to whom it was written. Replies. A reply should promptly follow the receipt of a letter. It cannot be civilly delayed for any great length of time. It is customary to begin a reply by noticing the date of the letter to which an answer is given. One of the following forms is generally adopted. I hasten to answer the letter which you did me the honor of writing on thee. I have received the letter with which you honored me on thee. I have not been able until this moment to answer the letter which you did me the honor of writing on thee. Rules of Epistolary Composition 1. Every letter is of some importance. Remember this before you begin to write. 2. Do not consult grammarians or lexicons when you write a letter. Depend rather on an attentive perusal of the best epistolary authors of both sexes. Study the letters of women in preference to those of men. 3. Before you begin a letter, imagine that you are in the presence of the absent person. Converse with him, pen in hand. 4. Julius Caesar dictated several letters at once. Do not imitate the dictator of Rome. Compose, but one letter at a time. 5. In your letters to a man in office or to a protector, beware of exhibiting more intellect than he possesses. 6. Do not write a letter of reproof immediately after a liberal repast. 7. Never write long letters to persons in easy circumstances. 8. During your whole life, write to your instructors or instructresses with as much respect and gratitude as to your parents. 9. In your letters, ask nothing and refuse nothing, which would cause you to blush if you were to make the request or denial in person. 10. Write all your letters in a simple style, especially those which are addressed to the unlearned and to men of sense. 11. When you propose to be laconic in your letters, avoid dryness. A dry style is the evidence of a barren mind. 12. A letter is like a nosegay. The thoughts should be well assorted. 13. In the crowd of persons, there are no two countenances exactly alike. Let the case be the same with your letters. 14. Speak of your friends as if they were present. Write to them in the same manner. 
15. In your letters, accommodate yourself to the respective capacities of your correspondence. A young man should slacken his pace when he walks with an old gentleman or with a lady. 16. Do not amass a previous store of brilliant or profound ideas in order to dispose of them in your letters as occasion may require. In the epistolary style, it is especially true that we must live from day to day. 17. Every kind of style may enter into the composition of letters. In this respect, everything depends on the subject and the writer. The sublime does not exclude simplicity. On the contrary, it includes it. 18. If you cannot avoid superfluities in your letters, be incorrect rather than pedantic. 19. Do not meditate long before writing a letter, but invariably revise it after it is written. 20. Be sparing in the use of puns in conversation. Employ them still more sparingly in your letters. 21. A father and son should not address each other as companions, but the letters of brothers may resemble those of friends. 22. The mutual letters of a married pair when absent from each other should be affectionate and delicate. Many things should be the mere subjects of conjecture. They may occasionally be spoken, but never committed to writing. 23. Let your tongue and your pen have full scope, but act like a skillful horseman, and let them constantly feel that they shall be free only while they abstain from abusing the liberty which you grant to them in your conversations or letters. 24. Be brief when you write to magistrates. They have neither time nor patience to read long epistles. 25. Where you inflict censure or bestow praise in your letters, be concise. 26. Let every expression in your letters have the air of civility. This will render affected compliments and politeness unnecessary. Too many persons are polite in order to avoid civility. 27. Never send a letter which has produced weariness or trouble in writing. It would certainly weary the reader. 28. When you are thirsty, you drain a cup at a single draught. Attend to the proper time for composition and let your letter be commenced and finished as if it were with a single stroke of the pen. 29. In all your conversations, forbear to sacrifice truth to considerations of civility or respect. Avoid the same fault in your letters. A spoken falsehood is a great evil. A written falsehood is a still greater one. 30. As the first thoughts are often the best, be careful to answer a letter without delay. No harm, however, will result from deferring the reply for a day or two, especially if it relates to an affair of importance. Notes Notes, as considered in this book, are brief messages pertaining to transient and local interests by which persons in the same community make known to one another their wishes, compliments, or commands. Notes or billets differ from ordinary letters in the four particulars. First, they are more formal. Second, they are written wholly or partly in the third person. Third, the date is generally at the bottom. Fourth, they are without signature. Notes are appropriately used between equals in all matters of ceremony, such as weddings and dinners, and in brief communications between persons but slightly acquainted. They may be used between unequals in any brief and formal message. It is difficult to write a note in the third person, and great care must be taken not to change from the third person to the first or second. The paper and envelopes used for notes should be plain and of the best quality. White paper is always in good taste. For weddings, no other kind is allowable, but for other occasion, delicate tints may be used. The styles of note are constantly varying, hence no definite size or shape can be given. Wedding notes always bear a monogram consisting of the combined initials of the bridegroom and bride. Besides, the fine envelopes that enclose what is written, outside envelopes, as a protection, are generally used. 
These are indispensable when notes are sent by mail. In such cases, the full address should be written on the outside envelope and the name only on the inner one. Style. The most fashionable notes are characterized by simplicity. The language is concise, courteous, plain, and beautiful. Flourishes are out of place. Refined taste exhibits itself in richness of material, beauty of form, harmony of parts, and perfect adaptation to circumstances, rather than an excessive display. Invitations, wedding. Wedding invitations are issued by the parents or nearest friends of the bride about 10 days before the ceremony. They may be written or printed on note paper or on cards, but for all ceremonies invitations the note form is preferred. Notes printed from engraved plates are greatly superior to those printed from type and are used almost exclusively by fashionable people. When an answer is desired, the letters RSVP or the words the favor of an answer is requested are written or printed at the bottom. Announcements. Anniversary weddings, dinners, parties, receptions, and balls. These topics are treated of with sufficient fullness in the chapters on their respective subjects and need not be noticed here, since in the proper connection model notes for invitations are given. Acceptances and regrets. An acceptance is an affirmative answer, a regret is a non-acceptance. An invitation to a dinner should be promptly accepted or declined. Wedding invitations and receptions do not require an acceptance unless they contain the letters RSVP or their equivalent. This may be said of invitations to parties and balls. Invitations to weddings, receptions, and balls should be answered if an answer is required not later than the third day. The answer to a joint note from a husband and wife should be addressed on the envelope to the wife alone, but the answer should contain within it a recognition of both persons. Superscription and Delivery The superscription on the envelope proper consists of the name alone, written as on an ordinary letter. The former practice of writing present under the name is now discarded. The outside envelope should have upon it the full address of the person who receives it. Notes are usually delivered by a private messenger but the mail is used to convey notes to persons living in another town or city or in distant parts of the same city. Cards. To cultured and refined people, the visiting card conveys an unmistakable intelligence, but to the uncultured and unrefined, it is nothing more than a bit of paper which to them has no significance whatever. The social position of a stranger is often determined by the texture, style of engraving, and the hour of leaving a card. Indeed, the card is an exponent of one's social standing. A perfect breeding may be easily expressed in the fashionable formalities of cards. The elegance of social forms are observed and preserved in proportion to the degree of culture and civilization of any community. Cards should be of fine texture in plain script or nicely written and of medium size. Calling cards. Nothing but the name should be on a card used in calling. The street and number may be on the card of the husband, but when necessary may be written in pencil by a lady. A business card must not be used for a friendly call. A physician may put the prefix doctor or the affix MD upon his card and an army or navy officer his rank and branch of service. Card to serve for calls. A card may be made to serve the purpose of a call. It may be sent in an envelope or left in person. In the latter case, one corner should be turned down, if for the lady of the house. Fold the card in the middle if you wish to indicate that the call is on several or all the members of the family. Leave a card for each guest should any be visiting at the house. A card enclosed in an envelope. A card enclosed in an envelope for the purpose of returning a call made in person expresses a desire that visiting between the parties be ended. When such is not the intention, cards should not be enclosed in an envelope. PPC cards are sent by post and are the only cards that are as yet universally considered admissible to be sent in this way. 
cards sent to the newly married living in other cities or in answering wedding cards forwarded when absent from home may be enclosed and sent by post. Size and style. The cards of unmarried and married men should be small. For married persons, a medium size is in better taste than a large card. The engraving and simple writing is preferred and without flourishes. Printed letters, large or small, are very commonplace no matter what the type may be. The mister before the name should be dispensed with by young men. Card for mother and daughter. A young lady may, with propriety, have cards of her own, or her name may be engraved or printed on her mother's cards, both in script. It is also fashionable for the daughter's name to be printed on the same card with the names of her father and mother. Wedding cards. Wedding cards are only sent to those people whom the newly married couple desire to keep among their acquaintances, and it is then the duty of those receiving the cards to call first on the young couple. PPC cards. PPC, pour prendre congé, should be written in one corner of a card left at a farewell visit before a long protracted absence. Such cards may be sent by messenger or by post, it not being necessary to deliver them in person. It is not customary to send PPC cards when the absence from home is only for a few months, nor when starting in midsummer for a foreign country. They are sent by ladies just previous to their contemplated marriage to serve the purpose of a call. Leave cards in making first calls. In making the first calls of the season, both ladies and gentlemen should each leave a card at every house called upon, even if the ladies are receiving. The number and street should be written on the card of young gentlemen. Leave cards after an invitation. Cards must be left with those who have sent invitations, whether accepted or not. If it is desired to end the acquaintance, the cards can be left without inquiring whether the ladies are at home, but they must be left in person. When gentlemen are only on terms of formal visiting, they should not expect to receive invitations from ladies until the yearly autumnal call has been made, or until their cards have been left to represent themselves. A Bridegroom's Card The bridegroom often sends his bachelor card, enclosed in an envelope, to those of his acquaintances with whom he wishes to continue on visiting terms. Those who receive a card should call on the bride within ten days after she has taken possession of her new home. Funerals the saddest of all duties to perform is our duty to the dead. It becomes us to show in every possible way our sympathies for the bereaved and the deepest respect for the solemn occasion. Of late, forms of ostentation at funerals are gradually diminishing, and by some even mourning habiliments are rejected in whole or in part. Invitation to a Funeral It is customary in cities to give notice of death and announcement of funeral through the newspaper, but for fear it will not reach all in time, invitations are sent to personal and family friends of the deceased. Private invitations are usually printed on fine small notepaper with a heavy black border and in such form as the following. Funeral Arrangements It is customary to trust the details of the arrangements for a funeral to some relative or friend of the family, or if there be none such it can be safely left with the undertaker. It is prudent to name a limit for the expenses of the funeral, and the means of the family should of course govern this. Pomp and display should always be avoided. The lesson of death is too solemn to be made the occasion of mere show. The House of Mourning Upon entering the House of Mourning, the hat should be removed, and all loud talking or confusion avoided. All differences and quarrels should be forgotten, and enemies who meet at a funeral should treat each other with respect and dignity. No calls of condolence should be made upon the bereaved family while the dead remains in the house, and members of the family may be excused from receiving any but their most intimate friends at that time. The bell knob or door handle is draped with black crepe, with a black ribbon tied on if the deceased is married or advanced in years, and with a white ribbon if young or unmarried. Funeral Services 
If the services are held at the house, some near friend or relative will receive the guests. The immediate members of the family and near relatives should take a final view of the corpse just before the arrival of the guests and should not make their appearance again until about time for the services to commence. The clergyman in taking his position should accommodate himself to the hearing of all if possible, but especially to the family and near relatives who will probably be in a room to themselves. In such case, he should stand in the doorway. The guests will have taken a last look at the corpse before seating themselves, and at the conclusion of the services the coffin lid is closed and the remains are borne to the hearse. The custom of opening the coffin at church unless the person is one of distinguished prominence is fast falling into disuse. The pallbearers. The pallbearers, usually six but sometimes eight in number, are generally chosen from the intimate acquaintances of the deceased and of nearly the same age. If they walk to the cemetery, they take their position in equal numbers on either side of the hearse. Order of the procession. The carriages containing the clergymen and pallbearers precede the hearse, immediately followed by the carriages of the nearest relatives, more distant relatives and friends, respectively. When societies or Masonic bodies take part in the procession, they precede the hearse. The horse of a deceased mounted military officer, fully caparisoned and draped in mourning, will be led immediately after the hearse. As the mourners pass out to enter the carriages, the guests stand with uncovered heads. No salutations are given or received. The person who officiates as master of ceremonies assists the mourners to enter and alight from the carriages. At the cemetery, the clergyman or priest precedes the coffin. Floral Decorations the decorations for the coffin are usually flowers arranged in a beautiful wreath for a child or young person and a cross for a married person. The flowers are mostly white. Friends may send floral devices as a mark of esteem. These should be sent in time for decorative purposes. Calls upon the bereaved family. Friends may call upon the bereaved family in a week after burial and acquaintances within a month. It is the custom for friends to wear no bright colors when making their calls of condolence. Short notes of condolence may be sent as an expression of sympathy. Formal notes of condolence are no longer sent. Habiliments of mourning. Custom prescribes some indication of one's bereavement in their dress. They who choose to adopt this custom may do so with perfect propriety. The widow dresses in mourning for life or until a subsequent marriage. For the loss of a brother or sister or son or daughter six months or a year, as they may prefer. Washington Etiquette To our national capital, where social standing is determined by official rank, there are some special rules of etiquette which we shall briefly notice in this chapter. The President The President is regarded as the first man in the nation, socially as well as officially. There is no special set of formalities necessary for forming his acquaintance. He receives calls, but is not required to return them. He is addressed as Mr. President or Your Excellency. When the President gives up the morning hours to receive calls, those who have business with him take precedence over those who have not. In either case, the caller is summoned into the room occupied by the President's secretaries. Here he presents his card and is shown in to the President. The person who has no business with the President simply pays his respects and withdraws. On a private call, it is always better to secure the services of some official or friend of the President to go with you and introduce you. Receptions at the White House. While Congress is in session, stated receptions are given at the White House, which all are permitted to attend. The caller gives his name to the usher upon entering the reception room. The usher announces the name, and as the caller approaches the president, he is introduced by an official appointed for that purpose. Having been presented to the president and the members of his family, the guest passes on and mingles in the social intercourse of those assembled. A caller may leave his card if he wishes. Presidential State Dinners. At state dinners given by the president, the same rules prevail as at any other formal dinner. 
but precedence is given to the guests according to official station. An invitation from the president cannot be refused, and it affords a sufficient excuse for breaking any other engagement, but the parties with whom you may have other engagements should be informed of your invitation from the president. Members of the presidential family. The wife of the president is not obliged to return calls, though she may visit those who are special friends or whom she wishes to honor by her company. The other members of the president's family may receive and return calls. New Year's Receptions at the White House New Year's receptions are the most ceremonious occasions which occur at the White House. Ladies appear in the most elegant toilettes suitable for a morning reception, and members of foreign legations appear in the court dress of their respective nationalities. Order of Official Rank Next in rank to the President are the Chief Justice, the Vice President, and Speaker of the House of Representatives. These receive the first visits from all others. Next in order are the General of the Army and the Admiral of the Navy. All these, so far mentioned, receive the first call from the representatives. The wife of any official is entitled to the same social precedence as her husband. Among officers of the Army and Navy, the Lieutenant General corresponds to the Vice Admiral, the Major General to the Rear Admiral, Brigadier General to Commodore, Colonel to Captain in the Navy, and so on. Cabinet Officers On all ordinary occasions, the Cabinet Officers take equal rank. When it becomes necessary in state ceremony to have some order of precedence, it is as follows. Secretary of State of the Treasury, of War, of the Navy, the Postmaster General, Secretary of the Interior, Attorney General. The wives of the cabinet officers or the ladies of the household give receptions on every Wednesday during the season, from the 1st of January till Lent. On these occasions, all who wish to do so are at liberty to call, and refreshments are served. The ladies of the family are under obligations to return these calls and leave the cards of the cabinet officers with an invitation to an evening reception. Cabinet officers are expected to entertain, by dinners and otherwise, senators, representatives, and other high officials and distinguished visitors at Washington, as well as the ladies of their respective families. Hours for calling at the Capitol are usually from two till half past five. Senators and representatives. It is optional with senators, representatives, and all other officials except president and cabinet officers whether they entertain. Foreign titles. In this country, where titles are not handed down from father to son but one, if at all, by each for himself, we naturally know but little of hereditary titles. In Europe it is quite different, and as many of our citizens go abroad, it will be well that they be informed upon this subject. For in Europe, to fail to give a person his or her proper title is a serious breach of manners, and one not readily overlooked. Royalty. The head of the social structure in England is the king and queen. They are addressed under the form Your Majesty. Second in rank is the Prince of Wales, heir apparent to the throne. The other children, while in their minority, are all as princes and princesses. The eldest of the princesses is the crown princess. When they attain to their majority, the princes become dukes, and the princesses retain their former title, adding that to their husbands when they marry. Members of the royal house are all designated as their royal highnesses. The nobility. A duke who inherits the title from his father is one grade below a royal duke. The wife of a duke is a duchess. They are both addressed as Your Grace. The eldest son of a duke is styled a marquis until he comes into possession of his father's title. His wife is a marchioness. The younger sons of a duke are by courtesy called lords, and the daughters have the title of lady prefixed to their Christian names. An earl or a baron is spoken of as a lord, and his wife as a lady, though to the lady the title of countess or baroness would rightly belong. The daughters of an earl are ladies, the younger sons of both earls and barons are honorables. Bishops receive the title of lord, but with them it is not hereditary. 
the gentry. Baronets are addressed as sirs, and their wives receive the title of lady, but they are only commoners of a higher degree. A clergyman, by right of his calling, stands on an equality with all commoners, a bishop with all peers. Esquire. In England, the title of Esquire is not merely an empty compliment, as it is in this country. The following have a legal right to the title. The sons of peers, whether known as lords or honorables. The eldest sons of peers' sons and their eldest sons in perpetual descent. All the sons of baronets. All esquires of the knights of the bath. Lords of manors, chiefs of clans, and other tenants of the crown in capite are esquires by prescription. Esquires created to that rank by patent, and their sons in perpetual succession. Esquires by office, such as justices of the peace while on the roll, mayors of towns during mayorality, and sheriffs of counties, members of the House of Commons, barristers at law, bachelors of divinity, law, and physic. All who in commission signed by the sovereign are ever styled esquires retain that title for life. Imperial rank, emperors and empresses, rank higher than kings and queens. The sons and daughters of the Emperor of Austria are styled Archdukes and Archduchesses. European Titles Titles in continental Europe are so common and so often unsustained by landed or moneyed interests that they have not the same significance which they hold in England. Many who have inherited high titles have nothing but the empty name. This is frequently the case in Germany, and still more often so in Italy. January Garnet, Constancy and Fidelity November Topaz fidelity, and friendship. Thanks for joining me this week on the American Wordsmith channel. If you found value in this show, please like it, subscribe to my channel, and consider supporting me on AmericanWordsmith.com, where you can buy my novels, The Paper Pusher, The Dormant Age, A Man of Silence, and A Man of Action. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode. Take care.